Well, good evening. Um, welcome to Chris Concern Gospel Issues Seminar uh, live stream. Um, it's great to have you. If you're following us on Facebook or on YouTube, um, do say hello on the chat, on the comment sections. And uh, we're looking forward to a really interesting evening. I'm delighted that tonight uh, we've got uh, Professor Andrew Sandlin uh, talking about the culture war. Is the culture war necessary? Should Christians be involved in uh, culture and uh, trying to shape the culture of our country and what's going on there? It's a big question. It's, a, it's one that Christians uh, argue about and disagree about sometimes. And uh, Andrew Sandlin is a long-standing friend of Christian Concern and uh, someone who teaches at our Wilberforce Academy, he has taught there several times. And, um, and he's got a, a presentation prepared, uh, which we're gonna play a video for you for the next 40 minutes or so. And then uh, he will join me uh, live uh, to answer questions and answers from you um, as you raise the questions on YouTube or on Facebook. And, uh, and we will try to address those questions. Also joining me, uh, live after this, after this, after the presentation, is going to be Andrea Williams, our chief executive, and also David McKerreth, Dr. David McKerreth, um, who you may remember lost his position with the Department of Work and Pensions um, over refusing to call a six-foot bearded man "madam." Um, so it's going to be a great evening. I'm really looking forward to it. I know that Andrew Sandlin has got great material in this presentation, uh, so I'm looking forward to it, and I'm looking forward to your questions and this live discussion that we'll have with him uh, once this presentation has run through in about 40 minutes. So um, I'll leave you to watch the presentation now, and I'll see you uh, live with Andrea and David McCarreth, um after that. Uh, so look forward to your questions and comments, and see you then. The United States and uh, the United Kingdom and uh, much of Western Europe are currently being roiled by uh, what can accurately be called a culture war uh, in light of the uh, responses to COVID-19 and in particular the uh, evil killing of uh, George Floyd and uh, the aftermath of that. Uh, but beyond that, the uh, legalization of um, homosexual marriage, so-called, and uh, the fight for preborn children, abortion, and uh, intervention in the economy by uh, politics, and so on. Uh, Christians, understandably, sometimes ask, do we have a stake in uh, this culture war? And in fact, is the culture war necessary? And that's my topic this morning. Uh, is the uh, culture war uh, necessary? Well, uh, let me first of all uh, assert the conclusion that this talk uh, briefly will uh, Will lead to, and uh, I hope that you'll agree with me that uh, both the premises and the argument are correct when I get to the end. But not only for Christians is the culture war necessary, it's inevitable and uh, inescapable. And not to engage in culture war uh, is uh, not to be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In some quarters, uh, those are very large claims. 
so I better do my best to um, support them. Uh, initially, it'd be helpful to define that term culture. In the most generic sense, when we hear the word culture, uh, we often think of uh, human creativity, and for some reason it tends to be limited largely to the arts. We talk about high culture, uh, the uh, classical move, uh, uh, music of uh, uh, Bach and Beethoven and Brahms and so on, uh, and then uh, low culture, um, country music in the United States, or a rap music or some folk music, but a little more broadly, the arts in general. Uh, there's a classical architecture and a modern architecture um, uh, and the classical sculpture and classical dance and more modern and lowbrow culture. Uh, that's not precisely how I'm using the term, although it includes those things I said. Um, by culture, I'm referring to the um, creative human interaction with uh, nature or God's creation. Uh, the American theologian John Frame said that um, creation is what God makes, made, and a culture is what we make. God doesn't make culture, at least not directly. He uses us to make culture. So we could posit uh, an equation, um, God's creation plus um, creative human interaction equals culture. And this includes virtually everything that man creates, uh, both uh, material and immaterial. Uh, yes, uh, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata is an example and a fine example of culture, but so are uh, hair products. Uh, and uh, so are uh, thermonuclear weapons. Um, Anytime man uses his God-given ingenuity to interact creatively with this creation, he produces culture. Also the immaterial, political systems and socioeconomic systems, they're examples of culture. So culture involves everything from the arts to education, to uh, science, to technology, uh, politics, economics, vocation, all of that is culture. Um, I'm going to lay out um, seven theses, um, and it won't be long, but uh, listen to these, if you will, and this, I think, will help answer the question about whether uh, culture, and particularly the culture war, is uh, necessary. Uh, first of all, culture is religion externalized is religion externalized. Uh, that's a definition uh, to which I'm indebted um, to uh, Henry Van Til. Now, if you think about it for a minute, there is something uh, inherent in culture that's religious. Let me just look at the first four letters in English, but it's the same in just about all the other 
uh, languages in one way or another. Cult, C-U-L-T, we talk about the cultists. Uh, we refer to strange offshoots of religion that are not sort of traditional or in the mainstream as cults. Um, but there's also the notice of cultivate. Whenever we use the term cultivate, it means that we're actually working. But if you stay, step back a little bit in the etymology um, of the word, it's working in a religious way, working religiously. Why is this the case? Well, man uh, is an inescapably religious being. God created man in his own image. And uh, therefore, um, man is a worshiping being. He cannot but worship. So before the fall, his heart is turned toward God and he's worshiping God and all that he does in his creative interaction is, uh, is a work of uh, cultural worship. In fact, everything man does is religious in one way or another. We sometimes speak of atheists or agnostics or people that don't care about organized religion as irreligious. Uh, it's perhaps not the best term because it conveys the impression that somebody can step outside the ambit of religion, but uh, he cannot. Even the uh, unbeliever has turned his heart away from God and uh, has taken those inherent, inescapable, ontological, religious impulses and turned them uh, toward uh, away from God and toward himself or toward the worship of uh, creation, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Uh, for that reason, every cultural act is a religious act. Um, creating eating utensils or, um, or iPhones or um, selling automobiles, all of those are religious acts in one way or another motivated by a particular religious orientation of the heart. There is no point at which man can step outside of his religious orientation, which is to say his relationship to God. His heart is either turned toward God or away from God. Uh, his heart cannot escape God. He cannot escape that divine jurisdiction. Uh, therefore, um, culture is religion externalized. Uh, we often tend to be dualistic today as Christians. Interestingly enough, uh, the world has quite gotten over that. Uh, but uh, for Christians, they see so much evil in the world, you know, and therefore they think they can retreat to the interior and the the uh, the interior, uh, rather, and uh, have a private relationship with God, and that's truly spiritual. And uh, that's the religious realm, but everything outside that is not really religious. But the fact is, um, out of the abundance of the heart, the Bible says the mouth speaks, and we could add out of the abundance of the heart, the state of the heart, the inescapably religious state of the heart, man does everything. So uh, whenever we act externally, whenever we say, whatever we write, whatever we do with our hands, uh, whatever we construct with our minds and uh, disseminate in society, starting with our friends and family and so on, that is religion externalized, the externalization of uh, our heart condition. And that's what culture is. Culture is religion externalized. Uh, that's the first point. Now, the, the second thesis is that man's primal 
calling is cultural. Uh, let's think about that. We go back to Genesis chapter uh, chapter 1 and verses 28 through 30, and we see what's uh, sometimes called uh, the um, uh, cultural mandate, uh, the Dominion Commission. God created man and woman, Imago Dei, in his image, and the task that he gave them was to cultivate, there it is, cultivate this creation, exercise dominion over this creation for his glory. This first specific act he gave to Adam is naming the animals. Well, that's a very specific, concrete, cultural act. He had to use his mind. He had to use his powers of observation. He had to use language uh, to name the animals. And of course, that's only the beginning, the seed of this entire uh, cultural mandate. Um, don't be afraid of the word dominion. It's not the same as domination. We should oppose domination, but uh, dominion is man's calling in the earth. God created the earth for man. Without man, there is no such thing as a world. Uh, God created the world, and then his supreme creation, of course, is man uh, on the sixth day. So this is man's specific calling. Um, as it were, what God is doing is deputizing man. We sometimes hear the word vicegerent. Man and woman are the vicegerents, God's representatives in the earth. Uh, God is a great delegator. I mean, even before creation, as we read the Bible, we see that there's various, various high angels uh, that uh, to whom he gave authority. And after he created the world, we read in the book of Daniel, for example, that God vested angels with some authority. You read in Daniel that interesting word translated the watchers, those who were to sort of watch over and have jurisdiction. Of course, the problem is that a number of those, not all, and perhaps not a majority, but a number of those angels fell, and therefore they want to exert malign and depraved influence in the world. But the point is that God gave them, he delegated to them a responsibility. Well, God specifically gave man the responsibility to cultivate uh, this particular earth, have dominion over the animals and over the earth uh, that he has created. So uh, humanity is uh, God's deputy, uh, his uh, dominion agent in the earth. I want you to think about that for a minute. Of all of the commands that he could give, that's the command he gave. He didn't need to give the command. Later, we know, is the first great commandment, loving God with all of your heart. Uh, he already had a relationship with man such that man would have understood that. He probably communicated it propositionally, but man would have known that, created in God's image, that that is his vertical calling. But his foundational horizontal calling uh, in the earth is to exercise dominion. Uh, that's a fascinating point because we often would think today that wouldn't be the first calling. We would think man's first calling is to uh, exercise uh, love toward the creation. And of course we should do that. Our man's uh, first calling uh, is to uh, build something, some specific thing rather than having jurisdiction over uh, this entire realm, but uh, that dominion calling is man's uh, primal calling. So that leads to the third 
um, feces. And here's where it gets very interesting. The fall introduced two kinds of culture creators. Uh, we know what happened at the fall. Man and woman fell. Uh, they uh, fell into autonomy or self-law. They would decide for themselves uh, how to define right and wrong and how they would live. That was the appeal of the serpent, slandering God's motive. God wants to keep you in check. God wants to keep you from being all you can be. God wants to keep you from being authentic. Um, and of course, in stepping outside the will of God, they sealed their own doom apart, of course, from the grace of God. Uh, so man, uh, man lost something. He didn't become less of a man. A woman didn't become less of a woman, uh, but uh, they suffered a curse on creation itself, not because it had sinned, but on account of man's sin was also cursed. Uh, now, because of this, uh, there are two kinds of individuals on the earth. The, the, the unbeliever, and all, of course, are now born into sin. The Bible teaches the doctrine of original sin. The unbeliever in the fall did not lose this inherent um, cultural impulse. You see, this desire for um, uh, culture creation is uh, an aspect of man's ontology or his very being. It's not only a task, though it certainly is that, uh, it's a uh, it's a mark of what it means to be a human, and we know that. I mean, it's, look at it historically. If you give even some of the early humans, we look in like uh, Genesis four and Genesis five, uh, we would assume uh, uh, give them trees and they'll make sticks and they can use uh, animal leather and uh, create uh, primitive drums and um, they can make uh, canoes out of trees. And uh, they will make primitive musical instruments. Put man anywhere, put him in a prison camp, um, and he will do anything he can to create culture. Man is a culture creator. But now what we have are two kinds of individuals stalking the earth. We have, as Cornelius Van Til, the theologian and apologist would say, um, uh, those that love God, those that honor God on the one hand, um, those that love the creator and those that love and ser serve the creature or the creation. Now, as you might imagine, they tend to create two different kinds of culture. Um, we would know um, almost unmistakably looking at, uh, for instance, the art of Picasso, that this is not art produced by a Christian. A lot of it just disgusting and pornographic. Um, if you looked at Thomas Kincaid, and I'm not a huge fan of his art, but he was a Christian man. You can see that his art reflected uh, Christianity and Christian truth. By the way, uh, unbelievers themselves, because of God's common grace, can be influenced by Christianity and therefore produce what is Christian-inspired art. But to the extent that individuals uh, are true to their basic spiritual impulse and nature. To the extent that covenant breakers act out their covenant breaking in their culture, they produce covenant breaking culture. The songs of Lady Gaga are actually quite different uh, from the songs of uh, Bach or even the evangelical 
George Beverly Shea or uh, contemporary Christian groups. Why they produce particular, uh, a particularly different kind of culture. A lot of classical architecture, not all of it was influenced by Christianity. That's not true of the apostate, uh, the Dupre Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, or the Bauhaus school in uh, Germany, highly modern and uh, unchristian. But this is true across the board in literature and music. Uh, anybody who's read Joyce's Ulysses knows what I'm talking about. Uh, it's very different from Robinson Crusoe, for example. Uh, it's true of the poets. The English poet George Herbert writes very differently from uh, modern poets or from um, uh, Dylan Thomas, for example. Uh, why? Because to the extent that individuals are true to their basic religious impulse, they tend to produce a particularly different kind of culture. So the fall introduced two kinds of culture creators. And then the fourth thesis is the gospel is designed to redeem culture. Uh, when was the gospel first preached in the Bible? Um, don't answer John 3.16. Don't even answer, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand, that Jesus preached, or behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world is John the Baptist, the precursor of Jesus Christ preached in introducing him to Israel. Uh, the first gospel message was preached was in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. In fact, it's often called by theologians the proto-proto-euangelion, uh, the first gospel message uh, that the uh, seed of the woman, the promise to man and woman, specifically to the woman, uh, is that uh, her seed would crush the uh, head of the uh, serpent, the, the seed of the serpent, and that's, of course, Satan and his followers. And we know that to be uh, Jesus Christ from what the New Testament teaches. It's clearly an allusion to Jesus Christ. God is saying to her, Satan has deceived you and led you into evil, but don't worry, Eve. I'm going to get him back. I'm going to reverse what he's done. Uh, I have imposed a curse, but I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ. He doesn't use that language, of course, in Genesis uh, chapter 3, but later we know that that's precisely what happened. Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, and who vanquished Satan and the principalities and powers, according to the book of Colossians and Ephesians chapter 1, and of course also in the, in the mighty resurrection, the body resurrection, trouncing uh, Satan. Uh, but in so doing, uh, he's essentially reversing these effects of sin, uh, uh, that uh, began in the Garden of Eden due to the curse. Now, it's here we need to step back and remind ourselves that because of this, the gospel is not merely a message of uh, highly individualized personal salvation. It certainly involves personal salvation. Those who trust in Christ, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, will be saved, Paul says in the book of Romans. But he also says in uh, Romans chapter 8, the creation itself is presently groaning, waiting to be redeemed. So when Christ died on the cross and when he rose, he died to uh, redeem all creation. Uh, we could use the language that Wesley used in the famous Christmas hymn, the, the line, uh, he died uh, to take away sin, far as the curse is found. Again, quoting Cornelius Van Til, 
the sweep of redemption is as comprehensive as the sweep of sin. Uh, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, wherever sin abounded. In our world, we would say, in uh, not just in human relationships, but in uh, education, and a great deal of uh, what in the U.S. is called public education, uh, government education, and science, which is often misused in politics, uh, in art, uh, and elsewhere. Uh, so, and this is a vital point, um, the application of truth to culture is not an implication of the gospel. It really is an aspect of the gospel. The gospel is the good news. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the good news? The good news in the Bible is not that Jesus died to take you to heaven. That itself is, on the face of it, a false statement. The Bible says, that uh, when we die and when we're in the eternal state, that heaven will come down to earth. We will live on a very corporeal, physical, uh, resurrected, rejuvenated, purified earth. Uh, the uh, message of Christianity is very this-worldly. And the gospel is very this-worldly. Not worldly in John's sense, the Apostle John's sense, where he says, love not the world but it's very this-worldly in the sense of the cosmos being God's created and inherently good world that's presently under a curse. That's what the gospel is designed to redeem. And man, of course, is the zenith of the highest point of that. Uh, and therefore, the gospel encompasses man and everything else in creation that's under a curse. The gospel is designed to redeem culture. Now, that leads really back to specifically uh, the topic I'm addressing. Fifth, in an unredeemed world, culture war is inevitable. The gospel of Jesus Christ uh, runs into a, and has a radical collision with those who are strongly opposed to this plan of redemption. And uh, self-conscious sinners obviously know that. They're opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They say, as it were, we will not have this man reign over us, as apostate Israel said. Uh, they know that in their heart of hearts, according to Romans chapter 1, they know the truth, but they suppress it in their unrighteousness. It's not that they're ignorant. They inherently know the truth because they're created in God's image, they're religious, God's placed the truth in their hearts, but they've intentionally turned their hearts away from God. And therefore, there is this inevitable culture war. Note carefully, this war... This particular spiritual war cannot be limited to man's interior, and that's what many Christians seem to believe, that uh, there's this particular unbeliever over there, and he's fighting his own personal battles. Let's say he's fighting addictions, and he's given to um, alcoholism or drugs or pornography and mistreats uh, uh, his or her spouse, as the case may be, or girlfriend, and acts in very cruel ways, and this this sort of internal battle is really the, the central battle of everything. It's really the thing that the gospel is designed to overcome, but that's a truncated view. The fact is, unbelievers act out their depravity uh, in culture. Uh, if they're involved in business, they embrace uh, larcenous and evil and unjust business practices. 
if they're in education, they want to teach uh, false ideologies like uh, Darwinism and uh, critical theory and cultural Marxism. If they're in politics, many of them are committed to the statist ideology, which is the notion of that for any social problem, the uh, the, the chief cure is for um, a growth in state or government power. Uh, for they're in the arts, for example, they have their interior report. All of this evil, dark depravity actually comes out uh, in their music, uh, in their writing, in their painting, in their sculpture, in their architecture. Uh, it comes out in uh, businesses and in um, schools, and it comes out uh, in um, every single aspect of reality, this created reality, reality we see around us, we see this conflict. It's a cultural conflict. Now, my point is this is inescapable. Uh, unbelievers are always cultivating. As my friend Joseph Boot likes to say, man, man is a plower. He's always plowing. He's either plowing, cultivating, plowing for the glory of God, or uh, plowing in strong opposition to the glory of God, wherever, and uh, not just uh, in his uh, internal being. Now, for that case, the, because of that, the culture war uh, is inevitable and inescapable, because we're taking the gospel, the good news of salvation, that everything is designed to be redeemed on the basis of Christ's redemptive death, and his glorious bodily resurrection, his present session, which is his reign, currently ruling and reigning, according to Acts chapter 2 and a number of statements in Hebrews and in Paul and so on, currently ruling and reigning. That particular message of good news is on a collision course with those whose cultural attitude is, we shall not have this man to reign over us. We can't limit that battle simply to um, sort of human interiority, what's going on in my um, my heart, my, my internal being. So um, whenever we see politicians committed to state ideology, statist ideology, and we see biblical Christians working to roll back the effects of the statism to give greater individual liberty, which is necessary for the cultural mandate, think about that just for a minute. Obviously, what I've just described to you and others examples of that are part of a culture war. In the present situation, the terrible racial uh, battles and racial conflict, there's an obvious culture war. Just as in the United States 100 years ago, it was between those who are 150, 160, 70, 80 years ago, who supported a horrid racial chattel slavery, thank God it was abolished. And of course, in a much more peaceful way by Wilberforce in England, that's the way it ideally should have been abolished, shouldn't have been there in the first place. It's a great act of depravity. But then we sort of fast forward uh, over a century uh, and the battle today is largely between those who hold the Bible's view that um, melanin sort of skin color is immaterial um, and uh, we should have a colorblind society. Everyone should be treated according to the law. That's blind justice. That's Old Testament law and New Testament law. But today you have a group of people saying that uh, white should be penalized and often blacks and other quote, people of color, which uh, is a false moniker and misleading and uh, unjust mon uh, moniker, uh, should be um, exalted. Well, that's flatly contra-biblical and unjust. That's a, a profound form of social injustice. 
which is to say social unrighteousness. In the Bible, justice equals righteousness. So in opposing, in, in, in spreading the gospel, the good news that everything should be redeemed, these false ideas have to be confronted, and that's not in addition to the gospel. The gospel is the good news that every, and this is biblical language, every high thing that exalts itself, everything that exalts itself against the mind of Christ must be torn down. That's what the gospel is doing. Uh, the gospel demands uh, not just ethical sanctification, but intellectual sanctification. So the gospel is a message against false ideologies. You see, Christ saved our minds. He saves our education. He saves our science. He saves our technology. Um, as uh, the, the fine theologian and scientist, uh, the late, I think he's late, might still be alive, uh, Stan Yaki said, uh, Jesus Christ is the, uh, is the savior of science. Science could only have started on the basis of Christian presuppositions. And uh, it did. And there could not be modern science, though the latest version of it has apostatized. Modern science of the 16th, 17th centuries and so on uh, began on Christian presuppositions. But there is this culture war that's inevitable when you have these two inherent, um, inherently contradictory uh, mutually conflicting positions in society, the gospel is designed to overcome uh, one of them, uh, that is the apostate one. Now, that leads to the sixth point, which is to avoid the culture war, is to embrace a truncated uh, or reductionistic gospel. Um, because the faith must apply in all of life, because the gospel does speak to every aspect of culture and created reality, to say that the gospel is only about, quote, getting souls saved is to reduce the gospel and uh, to narrow it uh, very dangerously. I touched before on uh, dualism, and I want to revisit that just briefly. Many Christians embrace this dualistic notion. It's an ancient Greek idea and not just Greek, but uh, largely a number of the Greek philosophers, Plato, for example, held it, and he and the Neoplatonists and others tended to influence a number of the church fathers. So this you infected the church and it still infects a lot of Christianity, even conservative alleged Bible-believing Christianity. And its basic premise is that the material, the corporeal, uh, all of this is somehow inherently inferior to the spiritual, spiritual being defined as the immaterial, um, that which um, has no mass or extension. Um, there is the assumption that because God is a spirit, and he certainly is, and uh, doesn't have material being, and he does not, although Jesus Christ is fully God, and he does, therefore, uh, the created order uh, the, the material aspect of the created order is somehow inferior. That really is uh, the first Christian heresy, which is Gnosticism, the most dangerous, most pernicious, and most persistent heresy that survives in the church, aspect of the church, and certainly uh, in our culture. Uh, this leads to a false and truncated gospel. Uh, when the Bible uses the term spiritual, by the way, it doesn't mean non or anti-material. It would help you whenever you see the word spiritual in your English Bible, just to kind of in your mind, put a capital S, 
capitalize it. A spiritual often means in the Bible governed by uh, the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, we might say reverently uh, super turbocharged uh, by, uh, by the Holy Spirit. And when the Bible speaks of the spiritual man, the spiritual person, it doesn't mean to exclude this as though we can do whatever we want to do with our body or material things, as long as in our hearts, in this sort of immaterial, we honor God. We don't have to honor him any, any place else. We don't have to honor him in our money uh, or in our education or in our music uh, or in our politics. That's not what the term spiritual means. Uh, let us remember to those who uh, degrade the body and materiality that Jesus Christ, our Lord, the cornerstone of our faith, was born and lived and died and arose and is presently reigning and will return in a body. And that the most evil being in the universe is pure spirit. So there's no question that... Uh, the, the greatest evil in the world is spirit evil and uh, material things given and surrendered to God can be God glorified. Unfortunately, the gospel today preached it uh, doesn't recognize that truth. It's often designed simply for people to make a decision, but not to reorient every aspect of reality. The goal of the gospel is the good news for everybody, for everything, everywhere. It's not simply the good news so that Eschatologically, uh, you can avoid judgment, although, thank God, that certainly will be the case. Uh, the final thesis, then, is that our task is to preach and live the comprehensive gospel that will win the culture war. You and I are committed, and whatever realm God has specifically called us, to preach and to practice this comprehensive gospel. If God has called you to repair cars for a living, do it to the glory of God according to the principles of the word of God. Again, quote Van Til for the final time. Uh, the Bible is authoritative on everything that it speaks, everywhere that it speaks, and it speaks of everything. He went on to say, of course, it doesn't mean it specifically mentions car repair, specifically gives you the recipe for apple pie, specifically uh, gives you the instructions for creating your own digital phone, but it does outline the truths, the basic cultural truths by which we do everything for the glory of God. Uh, therefore, whatever God's called you to do, and he's given every one of you gifts, it might be in music, um, it might be in driving um, a large tractor trailer, it might be teaching in school, uh, it might be in law. Some of you are no doubt uh, watching this uh, specifically and are interested in law. Some of you specifically in the ministry. Whatever it is, you're designed to live out the truth of the gospel, this glorious, optimistic, victorious gospel that in trusting in Jesus Christ and turning one's life completely over to him, um, in salvation by grace through faith apart from works, and casting ourselves entirely on him, we're giving ourselves to him as culture creators. And our goal is to influence the entire culture, the cultural mandate restored in the Great Commission. That, by the way, what we call the Great Commission is simply the cultural mandate adjusted to a post-lapsarian or a post-fall world. That's what it essentially is. That specifically uh, is our calling. 
to live out and to spread this victorious gospel. And make no mistake, the promises of the word of God are such that we will win. The gospel will not lose. God is not going to allow Satan to be in permanent control of the world. The world belongs to God. Uh, Paul says that very plainly. There's no question about that. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Here's a good metaphor. So Satan and his minions have set up a few pup tents, have commandeered a, a few little BB and pellet guns, and thought they could take over God's world. It really is a joke. The reason their joke is so powerful is they have deceived so many unbelievers and even deceived many Christians in thinking that the world belongs to them and this present evil order is somehow the normative uh, order for this present age. That is not only a lie, but a blasphemous lie. The earth is the Lord's and the calling of the people of God is to, under the power of the spirit of God, take back what is God's under his authority, not coercively by arms or politics, but by the preaching of the gospel, by mighty prayer, and by working in every area of life to reorient uh, this world to what it should be. So the culture war is necessary. Uh, it is inevitable. It is inescapable. And if we don't engage in it, we're embracing uh, a truncated gospel. Uh, the final note, we're going to win. This is P. Andrew Salmon, the Center of Cultural Leadership. Great. Well, I enjoyed that presentation. Um, I hope you did as well from Andrew Sandlin. Andrew, uh, uh, great to get him on the show here, is here live today. Good, good morning, Andrew, because you're over in the States, aren't you? Is that right? Yes, good morning, and also good evening to you, Tim. Great to see you and be with Christian Concern. I love you guys to death and appreciate you very much. Great. Well, we love you too, Andrew, and uh, love your teaching and uh, your perspective. It's really, really helpful, uh, I think, and I can see that a number of questions and comments have been coming up on the on the chats, which I'm going to uh, try and come to. I'd like to start, though, Andrew, with and uh, if I may, um, with a question from of my own to sort of... Um, you know, we get this kind of um, questioning about, you know, culture wars. You know, Paul said, I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that sounds like, you know, let's focus on, you know, the, 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 the sort of fundamentals of the gospel, so to speak. And let's not do more than that. And isn't that what New Testament Christian ministry looks like rather than engaging in cultural wars, which are surely a distraction to the main message, Jesus Christ and him crucified? Um, we should, you know, just focus on the main message and let the main message be the main message. Um, yeah, what, how would you answer that, Andrew? Yeah, good question. So for Paul, that language of crucified, and sometimes he says only knowing the cross among you to the Corinthians, that's shorthand language for the entire message of redemption. Now, we know that's the case, Tim, because if he meant to say that he is only preaching the crucifixion, well, he himself obviously did not live up to that notion. I mean, he preached the resurrection. Uh, in Ephesians, for example, he uh, preached about the relationship of husbands to wives. He uh, preached about the relationship of children to parents. In the Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1, he talked about Christ as being Lord over the principalities and over the powers. Mm -hmm. uh, he talked about how we should spend our money. He spoke in Romans 13 about our relationship to the state. Mm -hmm. So obviously, when he uses that term, a crucified, he doesn't mean simply the act of crucifixion. 
Right. He means all that the crucifixion was meant to produce and exemplify, and that's the gospel and all of its fullness. So right. I think we need to remember that when Paul uses cross or crucified, he doesn't only mean this act of Christ dying on the cross, though that's central. This yeah. is sort of shorthand for the gospel in its fullness. Yeah. Okay. And there's a comment here from um, somebody called 2010SJ. Uh, Paul did not shut away from the culture war in Acts 17 when he engaged the philosophers of Athens. Is, is that right? Andrew, didn't he debate with the philosophers about Jesus being risen from the dead? That's not really culture war, is it? You know, sorry, I'm playing devil's advocate here, Andrew. But, you know, tell me what you, uh, whether you, what you think about that. Yeah, no, actually, the intent of the question is correct. I mean, Paul dealt with the great philosophical issues of the time, particularly there uh, in Acts chapter 17. And uh, in addition, we can mention the early church when we think, well, they weren't really engaged in the culture war. Well, we need to understand that, of course, the epistles of Paul in particular were laying the foundation for what the church was to do. But in another sense, the church was involved in the central culture war at the time, which was emperor worship. Right. Uh, the, Ro the, the Roman uh, Caesars at the time uh, demanded worship. And, of course, the great conflict was not with, with, the, with uh, the Roman Empire, was not whether Christians would trust Jesus as Savior. A lot of people right. don't understand that point. The Rome couldn't care less if you trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. They were a polytheistic society. Oh, Jesus, they would say, he is a God. Sure, if you want to believe and worship him, fine. There are all sorts of gods out here. We'll accept that. Although but, the Athenians weren't happy with that. Well, the Athenians said this is a new God. And yeah. Plato got killed well, for that, didn't true. he? So, you know. That's true. Not Plato, Socrates, yeah. No, 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 that's true. But the real issue is with, with the Roman Empire is the lordship of Christ and his kingship. So mm. it's not simply this private message that Jesus will take me to heaven. Uh, to which they objected, but they did object when people said Jesus is Lord, and there is another king with Jesus, right. and that's really the that was the central cultural issue of the time: is Jesus Lord or is Caesar Lord? So from the very beginning, the church was involved in the fundamental culture war. Right. Okay. I think Andrea's in the background as well. Is she? Um, if she could come on as well, that'd be great. Um, there's Hi been a there. few questions. Good evening, uh, Andrea. How are you? Good, thank you. And it's wonderful to have Professor Sandlin with us, one of my great heroes of faith, actually, and someone who Amen. so explains this really important principle uh, of a holistic gospel. Uh, the gospel, um, the way in which certainly we work at Christian Concern to seek to bring the good news of Jesus Christ uh, to the whole of society. And surely during this period of lockdown, we've really seen the need for that. And actually, the results of those of us that know Jesus, perhaps not taking that cultural mandate really seriously. You know, mm. in, a, in a lockdown period where we've seen this extension of the culture of death around abortion, where we've seen the dismantling even further with regards to marriage and no-fault uh, divorce. Yeah. Um, you know, so we've got a few questions here. Um, like there's one here now from Melanie. Um, Arends, is it? I'm sorry if I didn't pronounce your name right. When and what did Britain lose its Christian faith, values and principles? Um, so um, maybe Andrew first and then Andrea on that one. Well, when, we, when and how? I'd like to ask how, really. How did we lose it? Well, I mean, uh, if you look at British history and um, in, in my view, and I'm willing to be corrected by my uh, British brothers and sisters, but it seems to me even through the Victorian era, uh, there was obviously a real influence of Christianity on up through 
the first world war and it started to drop away and then of course the second but i think it was a radical turn to uh, secularism and it was a turn away from the idea that christianity should impact all of life um it was sort of a dualistic gospel that said uh, christianity is fine for my individual life and it's fine for the church Hmm. but it's not really okay for medicine or for law uh, or for the arts, that sort of should be. So you so making it into like an individualistic gospel or a personal gospel. Yes, um, a, a personalized or a a decult a decontextualized gospel with respect to culture. It was similarly happening in the U.S. U.S. and all over the West, but uh, it's tragic because Britain has a has a remarkable Christian history, but like the U.S., it's largely lost it because of that, in my view. Right, Andrea, what's your comment on that? Well, I think that maybe what uh, the, uh, what we've done in the church is we've allowed, we've shrunk the gospel, as yeah. um, as Professor Sandlin was re referring to um, in his presentation to us. We've allowed it to become individualistic, whereas my hope would would be that the church would take her place truly at the heart of every community, and that we would be seeking there to the to where society seeking to speak into. A society where it is where it is hurting where god's truth where christ's lordship is absolutely under attack mm. and you know, for instance during the lockdown period wouldn't it have been amazing to have seen uh, the church speaking to the culture and saying where you're hurting our doors are are open of course not yeah. recklessly but mm. if you're lonely if you're hurting if you're sexually confused yeah. you know yeah. It, all of these sorts of things which are real, mm. which are wrecking um, our society, we have the answers for because we have a holistic view, not just of what it is to be redeemed by Christ, which is transformative and amazing, but mm. actually to see society, to see uh, so society uh, transformed and also to create, create the culture, to create the um, mm. climate in which beauty uh, and well, things can really develop, whether that's in family or in the arts, as, as um, Andrew Sandlin was saying. In all of so, so I've got a question here um, from Peter King on YouTube. It says, I'm very involved in preaching, teaching and seeking cultural change. My pastor states publicly we're not to get involved in cultural change, um, but just preach the gospel aloud. How should I react, please? Well, I mean, the premise of the question uh, not Peter's question, but the, the assertion of the pastor is on its face wrong because to declare the gospel is to inv be involved in culture change. Right. I mean, let's think about that for a minute. So mm. just step by step quickly. So we preach the gospel. The Holy Spirit opens hearts. People trust in Christ. We teach them to, they're baptized, to follow the word of God. Then do we say, well, you're to be a Christian only when you come to church or in your uh, family. But if you're driving a lorry or if you're writing code, that's don't really think of your christianity then well no we wouldn't say that we would say that jesus christ is lord of all things mm. he's lord of everything in life so to say that you're going to preach the gospel but not be involved in culture change is say is really to say that you don't believe in the effects of the gospel because the gospel yeah. inherently impacts and affects culture right Professor for sure tim i've got to say this we need people that can write code and i yeah. need people that can write oh yeah code. Because right now, right now, those that really love the Lord Jesus Christ are being uh, removed off digital platforms. Yeah. And, and code writing is culture forming. 
isn't it? Absolutely. Culture, culture forming. So, you know, this is, yeah. this is the kind of thing. We've actually seen accelerated during our lockdown period. When the ministry of Mike Davidson, who helps people who want it, move away from sexual behaviours that they no longer want, well, what's happened there? The digital platforms have been removing him. The bank is closing him down. You're a banker for Christ. You use your money for Christ, all of these things, or you don't. You actually keep that free. You keep that culture free. You keep money and banking and how you do yeah. it free for Jesus yeah. Christ, honouring yeah. him, or you don't. I mean, this idea that a bank can just shut you down because they don't like what you think um, is a terrible place to be. And why is that? It's because somehow we Christ, Christians have not so influenced the culture of banking yeah. uh, that we allow that. So this, this leads into another question um, from Dan. I think, how do we change culture? And Andrew, you're going to say whatever you do changes culture, are you? I mean, I'm preempting you there. Your, whatever you do is cultural and therefore impacts culture. Well, uh, uh, yes, but I would like to qualify that. So whatever you do distinctively as a Christian right. will impact culture uh, in a Christian way. Now, of course, we're all producing culture. The question is whether we're going to produce it as a Christian. And like Andrew was talking about, whether the banking industry or in IT, the reason we need Christians involved is because we need a Christian approach to all of these things, because that leads to human flourishing. That leads to human dignity. That leads to liberty. It's these, as we have seen, these other contra-Christian approaches that in the end deprive us of all of these things. They're anti-human yeah. at the core. They're not just anti-God. Eventually, they're anti-human, and that's what's happening. And one of the worst things, of course, is we've allowed them into the church, and there are sort of yes. all sorts of statements in the church that we can no longer speak to the culture. I mean, when you just look at the stats, for instance, of um, the use of porn within the church, yes. I mean, how have we allowed the world's view or the, the spirit of the age uh, to so enter the church well what that's really the devil's got us really sewn up then because we are unable to speak um into the public arena on on christ's view of yeah. that aspect uh yeah. of of life so these sorts of things have um have a massive impact and in terms of of how can we change culture it's by of course of course knowing the lord jesus christ of course understanding that we are sinners um mm radically uh, saved by him but then setting out the vision uh, for our mm. society imagine when our lives are changed so the lives of our families are changed the lives of our communities are changed but do we yeah. as christians really look radically different as a community do we look so different from the i don't know the running club well, uh, let's bring on david um dr david mccarreth if we can um, um Good evening, David. How are you? Good evening. I'm very well, thank you very much. Hello. Hello. Great. Well, it's great to have you here. Now, David, um, you were different to the people around you in a work context, weren't you? Because um, you you said, "I'm not going to call a six foot bearded man, madam." Tell us, tell us about that. Tell us your story about that. Well, I think it's very important. I say that conversation did take place because, judging my case, it did. I did take place. I was there. I know I was there involved in that conversation. But um, and I was specifically asked if I recall a six foot tall bearded man, madam or missus. Uh, and I said, as a Christian in good conscience, I couldn't do that. And essentially, to cut a long story short, they just said, you're not you can't do the job. Um, now, I knew in the moment that that happened when I said no, I knew exactly what God required of me that 
if I had said, yes, I'll go along with it, then it would be the same as denying the Lord Jesus Christ to me. It would have, I would have still have my Christian faith, but it wouldn't be authentic. So I count the outcome and the things that happened to me afterwards to be far more preferable to anything that would have happened if I'd said, yes, I'll just go along with it. Uh, and it's just going along with things that has got us into this condition. We now have these most unimaginably terrible things that are going on in our schools. Uh, and, and, and if we don't stand up, if we don't speak out about this, if we don't address these things, what can we do? We're Christians. We know the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been commissioned to go into the world and be sold. So, so, this is, um, so, so what you're really saying, David, is that um, actually saying that there's such a thing as men and women is part of the gospel. I mean, it is part of the gospel message. I mean, Andrew, do you want to comment on that? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, David, I admire your courage. You're absolutely right. Uh, it's not enough merely to confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. We actually have to act according to that. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is framed according to creation. A lot of people don't understand that point. I mean, the whole notion, think about this for a minute. The church of Jesus Christ is the bride. And of course, Christ is the husband in this relationship. And we're all children. So, if, But if you don't have this biblical idea of creation, that a man is a man and a woman is a woman, in the end, it undermines the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you can't say, well, this, I've heard people say this, I'm sure they do in England, well, this issue about same-sex marriage, it's not a gospel issue. Actually, at its heart, it is a gospel issue. And if we don't stand for it, we are failing the gospel. Very good. Yeah. And, I mean, just, and then you see, the thing is, imagine David's patience and their, critic, yeah. and their care and how he speaks transforming life uh, to them, <laughs> ultimately. Yeah. And imagine what we, imagine that uh, Dr. Mackworth is the one that is punished uh, for, for speaking out this truth. Um, well, my patients are being punished too, Andrea, the because they won't get a doctor. But exactly, but also <clears throat> the, most, the most, you know, again, again one of the, the terrible things is we are not doing them a good service. That's right. When we actually perpetuate in them something that in the end will only harm them. And furthermore... Well, the whole medical profession should stand up and say it's impossible to change sex uh, because mm. it is impossible to change sex. But you cannot love somebody if your starting point is a lie. That's right. Uh, and, and we're called to love everybody with Christian love. Yeah. That's yeah. it. That's yeah. the effect of the gospel. I think, right. um, I think as well, Dr. Macareth, there's a whole issue around um, the fact that our children are, be are actually being taught that you can change sex. We know that yes. children as, as young as five and six are transitioning, are socially transitioning. Mm. We're, um, I was on a, uh, a group call um, the, the other day where um, a woman, is, uh, a young woman who, was, um, she, who, who said that she was uh, who, who, uh, transitioned to be a man during her teenage years from the age 12. And it's only now in her mid-20s that she has stopped taking, she's stopped taking the testosterone um, in, in, because in order to revert, in order to, in, in order to be who she I think, I think there's, a, I think there's a huge, huge burden of, um, of, of, of litigation that's coming, and probably sooner rather than later, because people are going to start realizing this is, this is just harming people and harming them very badly. That's what I believe. Mm. I'm mm. not working mm. in that field of medicine, but that's what I believe. 
Um, and it says something, something on the Christian Concern website. Sorry, I have to thank Christian Concern for everything they've done for me and the Christian Legal Centre. They've done a tremendous amount for me uh, and are still doing so. But um, you said this, when Mike Davidson had his bank accounts closed, which I, I, I had my hair standing on that. I was really seriously alarmed when I heard that. And on your website, you said they're coming for the churches next. Now, I believe that. I really do believe that that's where we've got to. Mm -hmm. So what do we do about this then next year? Here we are. OK, so we, we feel like we're losing the culture war. And surely we are, aren't we, in a sense? I mean, Andrew says we're going to win. But at the moment, we're, we feel like we're in retreat, aren't we, Andrew? And, you know, Rod Dreher is saying the Benedict option. We need to basically we've lost the culture war. You know, same sex marriage was really the, the key battle that we lost. And here we are now in retreat. And so we need to actually sort of regroup and educate our children and make sure at least we're keeping our children in the faith and this kind of thing. Do you, do you agree with that, Andrew? I don't. Uh, I appreciate Rod and what he's uh, trying to say. I wrote an article, Cultural War, uh, or what, what does he say? A Benedict Option or Cultural Mandate. You can Google it and find it. No, I think basically when the Great Commission was given, it was not a commission to withdraw, but to advance. So even in the face of all of these attacks, I think what Christian Concern is doing and other organizations like that, if anything, we need to be more aggressive in a godly, thoughtful way, of course, but even more aggressive and not sort of retrench and pull back, but speak very boldly because we can't give our enemies and opponents the idea that they can have the culture for free. They can't have it for free. Mm. It belongs to Christ and therefore we need to press his claims. If it, mm. I can't guarantee that we won't go to jail. We might. Our brothers and sisters have. But in doing so, we will, like David has said, we will have been faithful. We'll be able yeah. to say we have been but faithful. But there's something in what Dreher says about how we need to, you know, get the, um, you know, pass the faith on to the next generation. And we have failed in doing that too often um, in our current generation. And, and therefore, we need to sort of make, make sure, you know, perhaps set up our own Christian schools and things like that, and Christian education systems yeah. to make sure that the... Um, the children at least get the faith and can take the yeah. battle forward. Yeah, You'd agree I do that, wouldn't you, Andrew? Yeah, oh, oh, yeah. It's 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 uh, not an either or. It's a both and. And right. uh, that's what Christians historically have certainly believed. They have had institutions, and they have also pressed the faith uh, in the culture. So yes, but I, I don't think that our responsibility right now is simply to say let's pack up our tents and let's sort of uh, sort of hide out in the ivory tower for Jesus and lob little bombs, little bombs over the side of the wall. That's not the biblical way. Let's press the claims of Christ wherever we can. If we meet resistance, we meet resistance, but we must stand for Christ. Yeah, and some people say, though, Andrew, I'm just going to be play devil's advocate again here, that um, it's not loving, right, to sort of, you know, shout loudly about, you know, how nasty the culture is and, and you know, be a shrill voice in the culture and, and, and sort of, you know, criticize everything the culture ever seems to be doing. This isn't a very loving message. You're going to put people off, Jesus, aren't you, if you do this kind of thing. Uh, Andrew, playing devil's advocate, sorry for you there. Well, I do my very best not to be shrill. <laughs> <laughs> I was addressing that to Andrew, really, first, oh, and then I'll come oh. to you. I thought you, I thought you said Andrea. <laughs> I no, must be she... sensitive about that point. <laughs> well, I'm sure that Andrea comes across as more loving than I do. She's the most gracious. No, um, I think an important point that I think David was alluding to is, of course, we always should be gracious. We always should be a kind. But we need to understand that the Christian message is the message that is beneficial to people and is right. loving to people. And so when we stand for the Lord, we're not only standing for him, we're standing for what's best for humanity, for human yeah. values, what's best for the UK. Now, mm -hmm. if we do it in an unkind, insulting, cruel way, of course, that's unbiblical. 
But to stand boldly for the truth is to stand for humanity. It's not just to stand for God, it's to stand for humanity. And therefore, if we don't do that, if we back up, we're saying, well, we don't really care what happens to our culture. That would be the least loving thing of all. Yes, and that's really the point. It is the love of Christ that compels us. It certainly is what compels me each and every day. And when um, I can look out of my window here and I can see many people across London, actually, there are people um, that are walking um, outside my window from, from my flat here. And I know that the Lord Jesus Christ died for every single one of them. And I know that no matter how much they're hurting, no matter or how much they're rejoicing, that Christ died for them. And I know that when people are stuck um, in ruts of behavior or antagonism towards the uh, towards J- Jesus Christ, that they need him. And if only they knew him, then mm. their life would be whole. And that's mm. and we have a message of healing, a message of hope, a message that is that it is loving to speak the truth. I don't want anyone to be in hell. Well, this I is this is true, isn't it? It's not loving to go along with transgender theory, is it? You know, and you know, that's not the loving thing, neither is it the scientific truthful thing, just looking to David here. And the same, it's not loving to go along with abortion and, and do nothing about it. You know, no. this is this is unloving, isn't it? David, do you want to comment on that? Uh, I, I think it's, it's worth saying, and you've been saying this, you've used this phrase again and again, culture of death. Uh, and that's what we're seeing coming in in such a big way now. Uh, something we have to stand up against. Abortion is a terrible evil. It's something which we feel very passionately and very strongly about. And uh, because we see, we know that human beings are made in the image of God, and we have to speak up. We have to stand up on that. And um, we just, we, we, how could, how could we not do that? My, my prayer is that your your judicial review would be successful. Uh, but uh, what I thought was this: that if um, God had consider the United Kingdom at this time and nobody had taken a stand on this issue, how terrible mm. that would be and how terrible it would be for the churches that we hadn't taken a stand on that. Somebody has taken a stand. You've taken a stand and I thank God for that on abortion. Thank you. Well, so I, I'm going to ask one more question then before we round up here, um, which is how do we take the culture back? What's what's the most effective thing to do? How do we how do we um, how do we do that? What's I mean, I'm going to ask um Maybe Andrew and then David and Andrea. Andrew, come on, what's your what's your uh, war battle strategy here? How, how do we do this? Well, I'll leave some to uh, my dear colleagues there. I could mention four or five things, but I'm going to mention one. I think all will agree, and at least I hope we do. I think the pulpits of the churches must regain this message that the faith is to be applied and lived wider than in the family and in the church. And I think we desperately need a revival of the older um, Puritan vision uh, in England. Not that they were right about everything or every application, but at least they understood the authority of God should be in all areas of life. And the notion that, well, I'm going to have my nice little sermon on Sunday. We'll have our nice little home groups. And then we'll live like nice little secularists basically the rest of the week. That won't cut it. We need bold ministers of the gospel in our pulpits to declare the full truth of God, to energize the entire congregation, to support and to do the things that Christian concern are doing right now. Thank you, David. 
Thank you. Well, we want we want Christians like Christian doctors to stand up and speak out, but we have to. The ministers are our leaders. We're looking to them, and we never hear these things from our pulpits. We do need to hear these things from our pulpits. It's absolutely essential that ministers preach on on these issues or preach on transgenderism. It's not very nice. People don't want to hear that. But if we don't, uh, but yes, we need to work together. We need to preach the gospel. We need to ensure that the gospel is sent forth with power into the, into the generation in which we live. We need to have strong confidence in God. Yeah. But we do need to hear these things from the pulpits. I think that's right. If, if, the, if the people don't hear it from the church, they're going to find their worldviews shaped by the grill, aren't they? You know, it's going to, you know, people, the culture is trying to teach them the whole time. The anyway, so if we don't cover these issues, transgenderism, abortion, LGBT, all this stuff, in the church, then people are going to adopt the same view as the world. Andrea, what's your comment? So I'm just, I'm going to actually going to throw up a question here as well from Tudor Owen. Does the panel think the culture war can be won in the court? Brackets, I don't. Andrea, what's what's your take on that? Well, you know, again, we have judges uh, that build a culture for Christ or not. Um, mm. so, uh, so do we? But do we contend in the courts for truth? Yes, we contend for the courts in truth. Yeah. For truth, do I think we're going to win the culture war uh, in in, um, in 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 the courts? You know, do we think we'll see the culture turned around um, through the courts? Well, no, because the courts um, are the same. It's the same. Are in the same position as medicine and right. art and media. It's and one aspect, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, it's yeah. just another aspect. But when mm. I stand in the courtroom and declare Jesus Christ in the courtroom, declare his truth where it is under attack in the courtroom, then yes, I will. And mm. we are called to contend each and every day. We are called to lay down our lives for the cause of the gospel each and every day. Mm. And I pray that we will build an army uh, in this nation that uh, will serve like soldiers, that will train like athletes, and we'll work like farmers to cultivate the culture that, and return and, and cry out to the Lord God. We must pray. We must pray unceasingly. We must call people uh, to pray. We must pray as we act. We must live life steeped in the word of God. We must live fearless lives. We must um, be also bold in the proclamation of his truth. We must be fearless. And I think Andrew is right. There's a sense in which uh, we need... Basically, you're telling us to live Christianly, it sounds like, Andrea. <laughs> yes. Because, and then and we've got to ask... Uh, correct. But, with, but like, like, the whole, like the whole... Like heaven and hell depends on it. Amen. Do we yeah. love Jesus so much that we want to win that we don't want one member of our family to be lost, because that's where Amen. it starts. Amen. That, 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 our, that our children would be pure for the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would love him passionately. Do we as parents, do we as mums, dads, is that how we feel? Then do we love our, our friendship group so much that we don't want one of those to be lost? Do yeah. we as a church want to lay down um, our lives so that not one unborn child will be lost? and disciple mm. the mothers and fathers and really live mm. out that pattern. Can you see how if the Christians up and down this country were captivated by that possibility, then we'd see the culture turned around. You see, sometimes we think, oh, it's all just too much. We can't do it. Yeah. God calls us to do what we can do where mm. we are. Can I just say... Yeah. <laughs> yes, David? 
Oh, I just wanted to say that, yeah. that, uh, that, that, that I hope uh, your, all of your clients agree with me that uh, that we, we're absolutely convinced that we've done a, the right honouring and pleasing to by going forward with our cases. Absolutely. Uh, uh, this is absolutely essential for this to see legal centre. You know, and it was it's amazing, and to see your stand for truth and how far that goes, and it's part of ch shifting the cultural tide. Thank and you for your stand, David. We really yeah. admire you. We bless you. We we um we yeah. we are so thankful for what you've done yeah. and um, how you stood up in this. Um, thank Pleasure you, Andrew, you. for joining us. Great to have yeah. you. Wonderful words of wisdom um, from you tonight. I really appreciated that. And Andrea, great to have you on as well. And thank you to all watching us. As well, I hope you enjoyed that, found it interesting, found it informative, uh, challenging, thought-provoking, and inspiring stuff. Um, do like, share on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, uh, wherever you like. Uh, follow us on those various channels as well. Um, we'll be doing another live stream, as we usually do on Friday lunchtime, 1 p.m., um, covering the latest issues and topics of the week. Uh, so watch us right here, uh, there as well, and, uh, and follow and subscribe to our emails for free on our website. Have a really good evening and see you again soon. Thank you very much. Goodbye.